0: I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the alleged death of Wagner Group head Evgeny Prigozhin, we have with us the leading authority on Evgeny Prigozhin and the Wagner Group. We have Katrina Doxy of CSIS here with us. Katrina, what do we know so far?
1: So what we know for sure is that yesterday, a jet went down, crashed in the Tivye region of Russia, which is between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Those were the starting and ending destinations for this flight. According to the flight manifest, there were supposed to be 10 people on board, seven passengers and three crew members. Both Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, and Dmitry Utkin, his second in command, were on that list of expected passengers. We've had reports now coming from Wagner-linked social media channels and coming from Russian state media that are alleging that they have confirmed that both Prigozhin and Utkin were indeed on board. There have also been reports that seven or eight bodies have been recovered from the wreckage, although they're reportedly disfigured such that they need more time to identify them. And therefore, we don't have concrete, independent confirmation outside of those Russian sources that both Prigozhin and Utkin are, in fact, dead. However, we are continuing to track the situation. There is strong evidence that they are, in fact, among those who died in the crash.
0: And Putin, just today, we're talking on Thursday, said that he was on the plane. He's dead. He gave some cryptic comments about Prigozhin. So we have no reason to believe he's not dead. And what are Western intelligence sources
1: saying? So Western intelligence, specifically U.S. intelligence assessments, have pointed to the fact that this does appear to have been an assassination on the part of the Kremlin. It does not appear That the crash was caused by air defenses, as was initially claimed, particularly on some Wagner-linked social media channels, particularly on Telegram. Instead, they're looking at evidence pointing toward an explosion on board that then led to the craft going down. Now, the Russian government, both in reports in state media, but also in Putin's comments today, the government has vowed to do a full investigation Obviously, we need to take that with a bit of a grain of salt, particularly as we're looking at them as the perpetrators of it. So some of this is narrative control, uh, certainly. But I, I would say, you know, even in the West, the investigation is still in those preliminary stages. But based on what we know, based on what U.S. intelligence has said publicly, it does appear that this was an intentional assassination attack that there was an explosion on board the plane, and that's what caused it to go down.
0: So, Katrina, it kind of begs the question, why do we think Prigozhin's plane was flying in Russia after he had been exiled to Belarus?
1: That, that gets into, I think, just the absolute roller coaster of a soap opera that has been the past two months in Russia. Even though, as part of this deal that ended the mutiny standoff back in June, Kurgosian was supposed to fully relocate to Belarus, along with the Wagner troops that remained loyal to him. Despite this, we've tracked him going back to Russia multiple times. Some of those times he's gone back to St. Petersburg. It's been rumored that he was collecting belongings, uh, potentially uh, meeting with family members or contacts there. There have been reports that he's met with Putin in Russia since that deal that ended the mutiny. And we know that he was in St. Petersburg at the time of the Russia-Africa summit, and he appeared in a handful of photo opportunities. Much of that was likely to project this sense of normalcy to Russia's partners, particularly partners in Africa that work closely with Wagner troops, to project that despite the mutiny, business was carrying on as usual, that they had nothing to worry about. But it's it's clear that those tensions have... Remained under the surface. We still don't know all of the details of that initial agreement between Putin and Prigozhin. We do know that, uh, based on comments from Putin and others in the Russian government, we know that the investigation into Prigozhin remained ongoing following that agreement, even though they reportedly terminated any kind of investigation or punishment towards the troops that had participated in that mutiny. And It really does appear that this assassination, as we now see that it appears to be, this assassination was sort of the culmination of the consequences for Prigozhin following on after that mutiny. And so now the question is, with this as a turning point, how will Putin approach the future of the Wagner Group going forward, both in terms of managing its operational structure and all of the places where it's currently operating? And also in terms of who does he pull in to continue to flesh out and advance this private military company model for spreading Russia's foreign policy goals abroad.
0: Yeah. You've made it pretty clear in our past podcasts and in your media appearances that this Wagner group is an important tool of Vladimir Putin. Who do you think he's going to have replace Prigozhin? Do we know? And what are the ramifications of Prigozhin now being gone?
1: We don't know for sure who's going to step in to replace Prigozhin. We don't know also if it's going to be one person or potentially multiple people stepping in with sort of a fragmentation of this wider Wagner network. So, of course, even though we often refer to Wagner as a private military company, a group, it's really better thought of as this nebulous network full of different commercial entities, financial intermediaries, hubs in smuggling networks. And so that includes, of course, the core paramilitary services, but also a wide range of resource extraction companies, media companies, uh, different commercial entities focused on creating and disseminating disinformation and other influence campaigns. It's very possible that We could see some of that fracture under different forms of leadership, uh, even if it continues to work in concert. One thing that we do know is that if both Prigozhin and Utkin, who is his second in command, are indeed dead, this leaves an opening at the top level. However, there are still many mid-level leaders in the Wagner network. We still have troops and personnel at the operational level spread across all of these countries where they're operating and assuming that Moscow does want to continue to use all of this infrastructure to advance its goals, which there's no real reason to believe it doesn't. This is a low-cost way of having all of this geopolitical and economic success at very little risk uh, to them both on the international stage and at home. so i I don't think that they're likely to dismantle all of that operational infrastructure. It's about putting, Someone or multiple someones in charge of it, ensuring that those new leaders are loyal to the Kremlin. They're likely to be kept on a much tighter leash than Prigozhin was. And then the real struggle is ensuring the loyalty of those mid-level leaders and the personnel, who many of them were loyal to Prigozhin, the man, and particularly as they seek to control the narrative around his death, around what caused it. So we'll be watching closely to this so-called investigation that the Russian government is running to see the narrative that they put forward, uh, a narrative that I think has already been sparked with Putin's comments today, in which he appeared to eulogize Prigozhin. Uh, He made a comment saying that uh, Prigozhin was a talented individual who had made some mistakes, which is the wildest understatement I've heard in a while. But I, I think that We'll see kind of a a restructuring and a reimagining of what Wagner looks like, how it's branded. Uh, It's very possible that we'll stop hearing the name Wagner specifically. Uh, But I don't think we'll see much disruption to that operational infrastructure, or at the very least, if there is disruption, Russia will want to continue to put forward this appearance of continuity because that's where they're going to be weakest is during this transition period. The other thing I think we should look to is the future of operationalizing PMC deployments to advance Russian goals. We've already seen the proliferation of many new private military companies in recent months, certainly since Wagner really exploded on the world stage and kind of grew in visibility. There were also many private military companies predating Wagner tied to Russia. I think that What the mutiny really demonstrated was the risk in having one company, particularly a company or a network of companies tied to one individual, the risk of having them hold this monopoly over all of these PMC operations, all of these efforts to advance Russian goals, because then that's a single point of failure and a single point of threat to Putin Uh, If that person decides to step out of line, which, of course, Prigozhin did in June. So I would expect that with this wider range of companies, we'll see diversification in the market for Russian private military companies to take on these various deployments and tasks. We won't see one behemoth that we saw in Wagner, but I really do expect that we're going to continue to see private military companies like this really at the forefront of Russian irregular warfare uh, and even looking more broadly, I think that as we think about the future of modern warfare having these commercial entities, these quasi-independent entities when it comes to how Russia has used PMCs, I think that this is a problem that's definitely going to endure even past the brand of Wagner.
0: They have sort of laid the blueprint for other malign actors to use private military companies, haven't they?
1: Yes. And I think certainly – they refined the way that Russia in particular thinks about using private military companies. So I mentioned that there were other private military companies in Russia before Wagner. They were less coordinated. So they would go off, they would have contracts in specific countries, they would advance certain missions. But it wasn't until Wagner that you really saw this sort of unified strategy coming together of how to use a private military company as this quote-unquote tip-of-the-spear model to advance into new markets, to specifically advance geopolitical goals using these different deployments, to lily pad forward, to support one another. That was something that Wagner really developed over the nearly a decade that it's been active after having formed in 2014 in Ukraine. And that was part of the original pitch in selling Wagner, the idea of Wagner, to Putin. I think that we'll continue to see that idea carry on. We'll continue to see them iterate on that idea for how to best advance foreign policy goals below the level of active conflict and through these various irregular means using contractors, particularly as Russia continues to face resource and personnel constraints with its war in Ukraine, as it continues to face discontent at home. These contractors that can be viewed as quasi-independent are going to continue to be valuable to them and they're going to continue to build off of what they've achieved with Wagner to go even further with whatever set of companies come next.
0: Katrina, a lot of Wagner's successes have been attributed to the charismatic leadership of Prigozhin himself. He's now presumably gone. Do you think it requires someone that charismatic, outlandish, big presence to really move these machines?
1: I think it's... It's hard to say, right? So, yes, Prigojan in many ways was charismatic, but in many other ways, he was just a very threatening, imposing figure. He was someone that could instill fear in his subordinates. We've had plenty of accounts given by former uh, members of Wagner or former employees of some of Prigojan's other companies like Concord come out and talk about just how threatening of a presence he was when working with him. Uh, how much people feared to fall out of his good graces. So I I think that Pryoshan was a very complicated figure. I, I think it's hard to just put him into one bucket and say that charisma was what made him successful. But I think that what any successor does need to do is balance a few different key types of relationship. So I'm thinking of three in particular. So number one, and for Putin most importantly, They need to be able to manage that relationship with the Russian government. This is first and foremost the Kremlin, but also maintaining a good relationship with the Russian Ministry of Defense, something that obviously over the past year Prigozhin has struggled with, as we've seen very publicly, but also collaborating closely with the various security services that we've seen work in concert with Wagner. Second, they need to be able to maintain a good relationship with partners on the ground in these various countries. In this moment in particular, as everyone's kind of reeling from the death of Prigozhin, and looking to what the future of Wagner will be, you need someone who can reassure those local partners that services will continue, that, you know, this is a behind-the-scenes internal matter that they're dealing with and that this will not disrupt what the regime actually receives from Wagner as services. This is especially important to these regimes, especially in Africa, that are relying on Wagner for this coup-proofing function. It's not important just that Wagner is a security partner addressing all of these concerns, whether it's the threat from jihadist groups or the threat from rebel groups. The core reason that Wagner's there in many cases is to protect the regime, to ensure the longevity of their regime which is a particularly acute concern for some of these more autocratic regimes that have recently gained power themselves through coups or other illegitimate means. So they are really looking for reassurance now that the assistance from Russia will continue because for them it's an existential matter.
0: Yeah, this is added muscle, isn't it?
1: Exactly. And so the third type of relationship that I think is especially important here is just the relationship with Wagner personnel. So. Love him or hate him, there are many people throughout this network that are deeply loyal to Prigozhin the man rather than Wagner the company. And so especially as we're looking at a lot of these either accurate theories or conspiracy theories about who orchestrated the death of Prigozhin and how that are already spreading across all of Wagner's social media channels – I think that it's going to be essential that whoever steps into that leadership position can be seen as someone that is on the side of Wagner troops that can support them and that can win their loyalty rather than being viewed as someone who's stepping in to control them on behalf of the Kremlin and who was in some way complicit in the death of their former leader. He needs to be able to win over the men under him in order to continue to preserve this operational structure that Moscow would presumably be prioritizing by instituting new leadership over the existing infrastructure.
0: So I guess two of the key questions are, one, will this have any impact on the war in Ukraine? And two, what is it gonna do to the existing operations in Africa as they operate right now?
1: So on the first point on Ukraine, I don't think it has that much of an impact on the war, at least at this point in time. Wagner has not been active in Ukraine for a couple of months now. Uh, They were already kind of looking for ways to draw down a bit prior to the mutiny. And with the mutiny, troops that are still loyal to Wagner, still Wagner employees, as opposed to having signed on with the Russian Ministry of Defense, are not active on the front lines in Ukraine. I think that Insofar as this ties into the war and Putin's broader attempt at image management, this is very much a response to the criticisms of Putin as weak following the mutiny in June. This is his sign to any other dissenters, anyone who thinks they might be able to follow in Prigozhin's footsteps, that rebellion will not be tolerated. And more importantly, that he can reach you wherever you go if you do act out against him. To have Prigozhin die in this plane crash assassination over Russian soil sends a clear message to any oligarchs or other officials that might try to act against Putin that he can reach you even on Russian soil. These are people who routinely fly around in their private planes who feel that their wealth isolates them in some way, gives them some level of protection. I think this is a very clear signal that You know, wherever, wherever you go, Putin can reach you if he needs to reach you. I think this is a reassertion of his power and an attempt to deter anyone else from rising up against him. On on this broader point of what happens to Wagner deployments in Africa and in other locations where they're operating abroad, I think it's certainly going to be a period of transition particularly if we have new leadership coming in, any kind of fragmentation of the network under different leadership, we're going to see a period of adjustment, a period of trying to win over the loyalty of the troops. And that's also going to be a period of time where Wagner is weakest uh, in these places where it's operating, where we might see gaps in the service they're providing, where we might see failures coming from them. And so I think that this is First, a a time when we're going to see those security partners on the ground kind of looking for ways to back up the services that they're getting from Wagner, looking for additional reassurances from Russia. And I think that creates a lot of opportunities for Western policymakers or for other policymakers or regional actors in Africa that are equally concerned about the spread of Wagner with all of the harms that it has brought This is a chance to offer new forms of partnership, to open up dialogue, to explore ways that other actors can provide viable alternatives to Wagner that can ensure a continuity of services to address the security challenges these countries are facing, to assist with good governance support, and really to step in to avoid the chaos and unpredictability that Wagner is bringing with it. Even more so, if we see Wagner and Moscow continue to try to advance this image that everything is, you know, continuity, it's business as usual, I think that creates a lot of opportunities as well for the West to continue to monitor what's going on. And when we detect things that are discontinuities, that are not signs of stability, things where Wagner is failing, uh, things where there are inconsistencies in Russian messaging – I think it's a great opportunity to increase transparency around those things and to share that information with local regimes, with the public, and really make clear where there are gaps in the Russian narrative, because Russia and Wagner, or whatever Wagner will become, will be facing a period where it's going to be more and more difficult to sustain operations. And... The more people know about what's happening on the ground, it's going to be more difficult to also sustain that narrative that everything is fine.
0: Katrina Doxey, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify,